You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here. We're talking Abir Mukherjee's The Shadows of Men, and we are joined by the man himself. If you've made it this far in and are somehow still unfamiliar with Sam Wyndham and Seren Banerjee, The Shadows of Men is their fifth outing, and Abir co-host, the Red Hot Chili Riders, was Vaseem Khan and his mother. Abir, welcome to the show. Yeah, well, it's, it's wonderful to be here, guys. Thank you so much for having me on. As, as I was saying, you know, I was slightly upset that you had Vaseem Khan on first, um, but you've, you've both explained to me that he was the warm-up act, and I'm, I'm happy with that. <laughs> well, let's, let's also I mean, be clear. The uh... money you slipped under the table to us to make sure that, you know, he tested the waters so we didn't make too much of a fool of you was a respectable deal for yourself, I think. It's true. It's win-win. Let's, let's put it that way. Win-win. <laughs> I think it's all worked out pretty well. Now, Abia, the, the Shadows of Men gets off to a very self-explanatory start. Sam meets with Udam the Lion Saint to blackmail him into doing less crime. Is writing crime fiction easier the looser your canons are? <laughs> um, I would hope so. I think so. You know what? The, the problem is, boys, I'm I come I'm coming from a background where I'm very lazy, right? So laziness <laughs> is, is my terrible. starting point, which is why, firstly, I write historical crime fiction because you know the the idea of staying up to date with you know technology, science. And even police regulations, you know, and morality um, are slightly are slightly too far. I mean, they don't interest me. I'm much more interested in in things like um, the the, politi- the politics of a situation and and creating a story around that. So for me, I don't like the rules. As you probably guess when you read my books. Well, we did notice. Well, yeah, I guess the thing that I wanted to get into off the back of that is that when we spoke with uh, Vasim, we chatted a little bit about the state of corruption in India's law enforcement, and Sam and Seren clearly sit on the less ethical side of that line. And we do see consequences of that at various points through the novel, but is it still important for you to be critical of them or is them being on the other side of that line just part of the fun? Well, you've got to, th- you've got to think back to when I'm writing. You're, we're talking about the 20s and the, th- and the 30s and you've got to remember at that time there was no such thing as justice for Indians. Well, not really. I mean, there was probably justice in small matters amongst Indians, but if there was on the larger scale the, the idea that uh, a brown man could be tried to the same standard as a, and be held to the same standard as a white man was anathema. You didn't have trial by juries most of the time. In fact, you still don't have that many trials by jury in India today. But part of the reason for that is because justice just didn't exist if you were uh, of, of a brown persuasion, shall we say. And I'm pretty sure the case was the same in many parts of the empire. And so, you know, Surin and Sam not towing the line is a reflection of the culture, but it's also a reflection of the fact that they're living in a society where there is no no objective justice, especially if you're Indian. Um, so if you look at all of my books, uh, <laughs> justice isn't often done. It's you know we get to the truth, but truth and justice, as I think I think Sam is told in book two by somebody, are two very different things. Yeah, I mean, the novel also on that front kind of rides this line between like a police procedural and obviously the procedure perhaps isn't quite up to date. Uh, But then the other side isn't like all out action spy thriller. And then there's heroes like, you know, James Bond, Jack Ryan, with which have a very strong influence from Imperial Nations that sponsor them. But you subvert that in a way by having Seren take most of the thriller scenes, often displaying the way he's both closer to the ordinary people of India, but also can never truly 
believe, be one of them because of his background. Is it kind of possible to separate the spy character from that imperialism? Why did Seren still have to be part of the British system? I think he had to be part. You've got to remember, these guys are on a journey. This this is a series that I'm hoping to take from 1919 all the way up to 1947, uh, which is 38 years. And I should say, when I, when I started doing this, I didn't realise it was 38 years. And <laughs> I'm I'm from Glasgow and we have the the worst life expectancy in Europe. So chances oh, uh, no. of me getting it's there terrible. are limited. Yeah, you've you've lined up the ghost rider to take in when you drop dead. I assume. <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna have to bribe. Vasim's much more healthy than me. He'll have to do it. Um, <laughs> oh no! These these characters are on a journey and and they will develop over time. And I think what you see in Surin is you're seeing the development of Indian attitudes. So when he starts off, he's very much the starstruck junior officer. And here comes Sam, this great ex-Scotland Yard detective whom he looks up to. And then, you know, as the years go on and he realises Sam's not all that. In fact, you know, in many ways, Sam has an opium addiction. He, you know, Sam will jump in where angels fear to tread. Um, Whereas Surin is actually the clever one out of the two of them, which is quite odd for, a, a you know, the sidekick. But it's also a reflection of the fact that in the society that he lives, by dint of his skin, he'll always play second fiddle. But his role is changing throughout the books. So if you see, yeah. you know, in book one, he was just Surrender Not, and he was quite happy to be called Surrender Not. And um, by book four... He's not. He's, he wants to be called Surendranath. And by, by book five, Sam's actually trying uh, and getting as far as Surin, uh, which is a which is a sort of compromise. And and I think that's that's what you know the life is all about. So it's a compromise. Yeah, that is a funny one because we know that the the Sherlock, like Sherlock Holmes, suffered from his various drug addictions. Uh, many, many, and and across the board, they were. And we see that Sam, who is kind of presented as the Sherlock, as the main detective, but obviously over time, Seren is is filling those shoes, I guess. I mean, Watson um, was always the well, real hero. Well, that's I'll say the it. thing, I'll say right? it again. He's getting cleverer and cleverer. He's becoming the real protagonist. Is that is that something you kind of planned from the start, or is that just going to happen? I didn't plan it from the start. I knew there would be a balancing of the relationships. Um, I didn't expect it to be this quick. I expected it to take uh, a good 10 books, um, but Surin himself was the one who's been sort of pushing for it. But I think part of it is, is a reflection of the times when I'm writing. Um, you know, by the time I was writing books four and five, we were into the, the territory of Black Lives Matter. We were seeing statues being pulled down in Europe. Um, and all the reasons that I started writing, which were to tell this other history that we don't talk about in this country, this history which is just as valid as the, you know, more so in many respects than the history we're taught in schools about empire. That seemed to be resonating. So it seemed like yeah. the whole world yeah. was moving. And it felt, you know, when I was writing, it felt like Surin had to play a stronger role and he had to come into himself quicker. So, yeah, it wasn't planned this early, but it was something that was going to happen. I didn't know exactly when, preferably before I die, before Vasim has to take over. <laughs> but, um, 
But, you know, this early I didn't expect. But I think it's right. I think it reflects the times that we're living in as much as anything, which yeah. is odd given that it's set in the 20s. Well, it's it's funny we're talking about the Black Lives Matter movement and all that because as Calcutta burns, the central conflict in the novel revolves around the two largest religious groups in the city, the Hindus and the Muslims. There's a real pent-up rage that gets lit between them, right? Now, yourself, you're talking about this now, and many other authors have spoken about how reading fiction has given us an escape from the, the social turmoil of the past few years. But was there a form of catharsis for you in getting to light a whole city on fire? It wasn't. I, I write about whatever is bugging me. So, you know, that that's my rationale for writing. And when I was starting to write this book, the thing that was really upsetting me was the, it, well, firstly, for the last 10 years or five years, it's been the rise of populism. So whether it's America with Trump, whether it's Europe, whether it's Brexit here, you know, whether it's India, you know, you're seeing it in India with the rise of Hindu nationalism. We have a, a Hindu right-wing government, which to me seems to be trampling o- over um you know, the the sacred pillars of Indian democracy, of, of secularism. And so this book really started off as my riposte to that. So it it was it was catharsis, but it was it was it was more therapy for what was happening now over there. It was a it was a message for what was happening over there, but it is. I write because, you know, I need therapy and I'm Glaswegian and I'm too cheap to pay for it. So um I just get it out on the page. Yeah, well, I mean, another thing that I, I felt you were pushing back on is around the release of Book 4, Death in the East, you said the novel was your homage to Christie and other writers that have inspired you. And despite being a mystery-focused show, I chose to feature The Shadows of Men because it almost felt like you were pushing back against the organizational structure of a Christie novel, blowing the scale and the drama wide open again. And I thought that was really fun and interesting. You picked up on something very important there, Felix. I think, um, yeah, Book 4... Look, I've I've written four or five books now. I'm still learning, and I'm still trying different things. Book four did it was it started off as my homage to Christie. I wanted to to write a locked room mystery in her style. Uh, I think many authors do. It just takes us a long time to come up with an idea that hasn't been done before. Um, but each book has to be. You know, I feel I have to do something different in each book. In the previous episode, you mentioned Smoke and Ashes, which is the third book in the series. And for me, the objective there was to write a thriller. I think for the first time I was writing a thriller. And I I was pretty happy with the way it turned out. Um, I think book four is much more complex than book three. So I think Death in the East is a much more complex book. Um, I think it's a better book, but I'm less happy with it. Interesting. I don't think... Mm. Yeah, I don't think, you know, given I'd, I'd set myself a, a standard that I wanted to get to and I I didn't reach it. But it's still, you know, it's a much more complicated book. And similarly with number five, The Shadows of Men, you know, it's the first time we're seeing half of the action from Surin's point of view. It's the first time I've written from somebody else's point of view other than Sam's. So I think from a, a writing point of view, for me, it's about experimenting, growing, trying to do things different. But you're right. But also trying to break down the rules of of the genre because the genre is, you know, I grew up in the genre. I I love the genre, but the genre changes. Um, You know, I grew up with um, Tartan Noir. And if you look back, that's very different to what was coming out of England at that time or or, or even or or before. It's very different to what was coming out of America. It was much more driven by social issues. Yeah, you'd like you'd like find out what happened in the crime at the start and then it was about the people 
who had done it or who were around it rather than the crime itself. Absolutely. And I think, I think the, the great example of that is, is one of the first of the Tartan War books, which was Laid Law by uh, William McIlvany, where you find out who's done it on page two. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the book is really just a love song to Glasgow um, and, and, and real Glasgow and, and the lives of real people. Um, and that's the tradition that I grew up in. And so whilst I want to challenge all of these genres, I write because I write from a political point of view, uh, political with a small p, not not in a you know in a party political way. But things that interest me are political issues and social issues, and the form that the book takes will vary depending on what's the best format to tackle that. As you say, the fourth book, Death in the East, was a homage to Christie, but it dealt with, to me, it dealt with Brexit and it dealt with the issues around immigration and integration. And that's why half of it is set in in England in 1905 um, during the Jewish immigration, because it's the same issues that we're facing today. Well, yeah, I mean, one of the things that you mentioned earlier in the interview was that you don't like to write about the modern day because it's difficult to keep up with that. But at the same time, history repeating itself makes it easy for you to practically do it anyway while under the the veil of historical fiction. (laughs) Absolutely. I get laziness plus current affairs. It's not bad. You've spotted it. (laughs) I must say, Felix, you've got my number. You've got me banked to rights. Well, that's good. I I think that is my job, so I'm glad I'm doing it. (laughs) (laughs) He's a bit of a cruel host, isn't he? Yes. Gosh, I was listening to the first episode when I wasn't even on. Gosh, I was in tears. (laughs) It's terrible. (laughs) Speaking of, we're chatting about the, the social issues and how that's such a huge focus of your work. Now, there's a really powerful moment later on in the novel when Sam, he questions his own ethics and and basically concludes, why bother having any morals when nobody around you does? Why should Sam, especially as a member of the police force, which is very corrupt in your this time it's very corrupt in India. And is that a lesson that he can ever really learn given his time in history? It's a good question. You know, why does Sam ask himself that question? I've, I've always been fascinated by this idea of a good man upholding a corrupt system. And when we're talking mm-hmm. about British rule in India, we are talking about something that was thoroughly corrupt. You know, it's always fascinated me that British and American writers tend to set their books in Nazi Germany or communist Russia. I'm a big fan of, you know, the Philip Kerr books, uh, the Bernie Gunter novels by Philip Kerr, um, the Arkady Renko series by Martin Cruz Smith. But what always struck me was, well, why are we not looking at our own history? Why are we not looking at the corruption in our in ourselves? Uh, and the answer is we didn't. We don't really want to. We don't like shining a mirror on our own past. Um, yeah. You know, I was. Ta- you guys are in Australia. I was talking to an Australian who said, you know, what, what we learnt at school, we learnt about Guy Fawkes uh, rather than about our own history. We learnt about the bonfire plot and things like that. And I don't. I don't know if you did that, but. It's a similar thing. We learn about these instances from 500 years ago in British history, but we don't we don't see the the history of 50 years ago or 60 years ago. Things that actually changed things or, or things that matter. We we keep quiet or we brush under the carpet. So why why does Sam ask himself that question? Well, it's, it is the fundamental question that I think a good man or a good person has to ask themselves when they are working for a system or in an environment that is corrupt. At what point do you compromise your morals and on what grounds do you compromise your morals? Um, for him, it's getting the job done is one thing, but he's, he's subscribing to a higher moral purpose, which is the truth. He's gone through the wars and what's what's got him to that is 
that I see him as that first generation of modern men. They're the ones who went through the Great War and had their eyes open to the fact that their betters, their you know, the, the upper classes, the English upper classes didn't know any more than they, than anybody else. And this culture of deference um, was misplaced. So he comes out of the war jaded by that experience. He's much more willing to find his own truth than believe what his superiors tell him or believe what he's told. And I think a lot of people who went out to India encountered the same thing. They were sold this, you know, this story that they were going out to civilize or that they were going out to administer um, to people who didn't have law and who couldn't govern themselves. And nothing was further from the truth. So when they went out there, a lot of them realized this. And suddenly you have this crisis of conscience. You know, what do you do if you are a moral Christian person and you have been sold this lie? You can do one of several things. You can repent. You can, you know, either double down or you can get hideously drunk. And people did all three. You have these gin-soaked memsabs and men who, you know, drank themselves into oblivion rather than face up to the facts. Uh, or you had people like George Orwell who actually talked about it in, in books like Burmese Days. Um, and, and so you have that spectrum. And I think Sam Sam's issue is the same thing. He's been sold this lie. He's out there upholding this system, which is built on lies. Well, the, the other thing that's really fun there of, of guys getting absolutely torrid while they're over in India was Sam's realization in this novel when Co- Colonel Dawson said, oh yeah, we knew you were addicted to opium the entire time. And he's like, well, what was the whole charade for? Like, I tried to keep this under wraps, you know, spent an entire <laughs> novel keeping that secret <laughs> hidden. You're telling me you knew it all along? Like, me. He kept it in for three novels. Yeah, I tried yeah, to. Yeah. I feel like it blew his mind and I loved the moment where he just has to move on that this secret he thought he was keeping for years wasn't a secret. But it's also, I think that's also a fact that uh, it, it speaks to the efficiency of the secret services in India. I mean, th- th- we talk about um, that period and we look at the success of the freedom struggle, but there were many, many terrorist organizations and none of them amounted to anything because they were infiltrated thoroughly and and extremely effectively and so so you know you know Dawson and the whole sort of section h thing speaks to well it, it's odd i think you've also got this when you look at the files because i've been to um i've been to calcutta and i've seen some of these secret service files uh, the phone taps and it, it's it's very odd and and this is something you commented on in the last episode you were surprised that um surin's idea when he finds this dead body is to burn the house down right <laughs> um that's because Surin comes from this strata of Bengali society called the Bhadralok. These are the upper-class gentlemen who are basically incorrigible romantics. Um, and and this, yeah. you know, <laughs> before you continue, I love the opening insinuation that romanticism leads to arson. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, how could it not? Fire is love. Is the color of love? It's the smell of love. I- it's chaotic like love. How can I explain Sorry, this yeah. to you? Um, okay, I'll give you an example, right? So there was a, a terrorist organization in Calcutta which robbed uh, a street full of houses for money. Uh, and what they did after that was 
they sent letters to each of the people they'd robbed saying, thank you for your donation to the freedom struggle. Your money has been placed on deposit with our treasurer and will earn interest at 5% per annum, which will be paid back to you upon Indian independence. However, should you go to the police, we'll kill you. Nice. That's the sort of mentality of, of the class of people that we're talking about. And Surin is part of that. That's a real life event. That it's romantic. That's yeah. such a story. You know, I love the, that. The greatest, the greatest story in Bengali literature is one called Devdas, right? And it's about this guy who basically pines for this girl for thirty years and does nothing about it. I mean, he makes Hamlet look, you know, like, like forward thing. You know, <laughs> but this is this is the Bengali mentality, and that's the that's the background that Surin is coming from. Um, he comes from this futile romantic gesture school of thought but the whole bengali freedom struggle prior to gandhi you know the whole was 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 populated by these middle class dilettantes who played at um you know terrorism so you, you read these files between, that the british kept on them and it's ridiculous it's it's upper class gentlemen indian gentlemen <laughs> battling upper-class English gentlemen. And it's it's really, really, it's it's surreal when you think about it in the context of terrorism today. Or even if you look at the Irish freedom struggle from the time, which is very different. There, it was a very much a romantic, upper-class thing to do. And Surin is, is part of that tradition, even though he's not a terrorist. He's grown up in that atmosphere, that tradition of the romantic Bengali upper-class Podrolok, and that's why, and they're ridiculous people, um, you know. And you know, to this day, I don't know if either of you've been to Calcutta. No, um, but Not Calcutta yet. is populated by people who essentially think they were put on this earth to write poetry or paint pictures. So. Th- the whole city will do their day jobs really badly until five o'clock when they will go off to their poetry society or their amateur dramatic group or whatever and partake in cultural activities um, really badly again for the most part. But um, that's, um, that's the mentality here. Mm. Sorry, I'm, I'm, you're going to have to cut all of this. No, no, no. We, none of that's being cut. Like, here's the thing a bit. You're, you're talking about romance now, which means you speak in my language. You're in my house now. I could so tell you the romantic here, Ben. Here's the thing. <laughs> this is why he understood the fire <laughs> Absolutely. Thing, I it's chaos. Fire is beautiful. I, 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 chaos I've got is to put beautiful. smoke alarms in my house. So here's the thing. Along the way in this novel, Sam and Seren, mostly Seren, are assisted by some very financially powerful women. How does your degree... How does your depiction of Mary Grant, Ravis Kola, and Aisha, the mysterious musician, play into this idea of romance you're talking about? Because I'm learning all the things about Seren. I was like, why is he posing as a poet? Why does he fall in love with women all the time? Why are there so many of these like crazy girl boss, rich women helping them out? I feel like I'm getting my answers. So you, you please explain a couple of things. But, but yeah, I mean, Surin, Surin is a product of, of that environment where you had this, these men who were prone to grand gestures. You have a whole culture, a whole society built on grand gestures and very little progress. And, it, and a lot of it stems from texts like Devdas, which, you know, Surin would have read as a kid or as a, as an adolescent, but even to this day, it's the same thing. Um, 
the, the women in the books. Let's take Annie Grant. So Annie's the Please do. the Anglo Indian um, uh, sort of love interest of Sam uh, from the first book. I mean, it was going quite well till he accused her of murder, um, and you know it's, it's tough to recover from that. So Sam's Sam's um, well, Sam Sam is sort of conflicted because he's still you know, mourning the death of his wife and he's not sure what he wants to do. So he's, he's sort of hit upon this strategy of guerrilla warfare against anybody else who might uh, want Annie's affections. And he does that quite well. And he sort of, he gets Surin involved in a lot of his plans. I'm not quite sure why Surin does it, but, but Sam's approach to romance is essentially guerrilla warfare and attrition. Surin, on the other hand, is, is very much the Bengali, and he's prone to essentially falling in love with anybody who bats their eyelids at him, uh, anybody who, who plays a musical instrument well. You know, all of these things are, are what Surin, you know, is fascinated because he's never had a relationship. At that time, he probably never would have had a relationship till the day he met his wife, whom he'd have been introduced to. So, you know, it, it, it's that segregation. You've got that romanticism coupled with that segregation of not actually ever knowing a woman. So anybody you talk to or the first woman you talk to, you fall in love with. So he's he's sort of in that boat. In terms of Urvi's Cola, Ur- Urvi's is actually modelled on a friend of mine called Urvi's ah. Cola, who is tremendously, tremendously rich. Um, uh, and as is her hung- husband, Jahangir, who's, who's in this book as well. Um, and I must tell you, the, for the first time... The first time I went to their house, um, they've got walkie-talkies to can contact the servants because the house is too big. <laughs> so, they're t- you know, they're telling the servants off by finishing a sentence with over. Yeah, come over here, over. And, you know, so that's the sort of lifestyle they live. You're um, fired, over. <laughs> like... That's very, that's very awful. So, but they're wonderful people. So I, I had to, I got told, Urvi's told me I had to put her in a book. So I did. But this idea of powerful women, you know, you've got, as you say, there's Annie Grant uh, and mm. there's Urvi's Kola. These are the, to be honest, these are the women that I find attractive. It's, it's the intelligent women, the women who are in control of their own lives are women that appeal to me. And they're the ones that I like writing about. So that's that's why you and me both. Well, that's it. And I think I think if you look at Sam and Surin, Sam and Surin are basically reflections of me. They're different sides of my own personality, but they're sort of gormlessness when it comes to matters of the heart. Um, <laughs> reflect some of my younger days as well. Yeah, I was I was gonna say who who got the most of your gormlessness? <laughs> well, well, it's 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 fifty fifty, shall we say? Uh, <laughs> I think, that, you know, they're, they're both, you know, unlucky. They've both been cursed with different aspects. My gormlessness is, you know, is, is, it spans a spectrum, Felix. Um, and, and so there was plenty to go around, shall we say. Yeah, I guess talking of their dichotomy, by the end of the novel, our iconic duo, duo are in uncertain circumstances. Sam has begun settling into, I, I guess, a bit more of a typical British lifestyle as he's been working with Section H and his partner Seren has fled the country. And with Sam no longer anchoring Seren in the police force, he's allowed to pursue his own adventures in Europe, at, at least until the next book. How has separating this iconic duo for so much of the novel prepared them for a murky future? Do you know what? Um, I separated them... At least in terms of distance in book four, you know, in half of the book, uh, Surin isn't doesn't appear till about halfway through in book four. 
I got a lot of people complaining, saying uh, we want more Surin. So that's why I gave him sort of equal billing. Why did they split at the end? Um, you know, this is this split was coming. Uh, you know, in terms of their relationship, the actual physical distance is symbolic of the the schism that mm. was always there. It was going to happen. It was you know you can't Surin's position is untenable to him. You know, he, his awakening to the, the the system that he serves and the way it governs his country is something that was going to happen. Um, the and, and his relationship with Sam suffers because of it, but really the, the physical distance, the physical separation is the manifestation of that schism, of, of Surin realising he can no longer function in this role of the subaltern. Um, how do I bring them back? Uh, and I have to bring them back because yeah. I've got a contract. <laughs> and that is something that I, I am working on right now. I've got some ideas. Um, uh, Surin will be coming back um, and he will be back from the beginning. But uh, we will have, obviously, we'll, we'll have time. We'll have flashbacks to his time in Europe. But more importantly, yeah. the relationship between him and Sam is, going, is changing, has changed no, I don't know how that's going to play out yet. That's that's the thing. I mean, you I, got I really thirty-three more books to decide. Apparently, yeah. exactly. <laughs> more books than you could count in your. your yeah, well, Vasim's going to finish the story, isn't he? That, so, that's yeah. true. He has to decide at least for the last. Yeah, yeah. I might have to write him into a really bad corner. I might kill some. I might do one of them. See what he does. <laughs> <laughs> Just Easy. hand Vasim a burning on fire draft and be like, Good enjoy. <laughs> Half the pages are missing. I should point out, mm. um, Vasim, Vasim has a very different um, approach to to every to life. To me, oh, we've we've noticed. <laughs> There's no Da Vinci Code riddles in your novels, shockingly. Yeah, yeah, no, none of that. They, no, no long treaties on uh, on how one ob- object landed in a museum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, Big well, well not not while running past it anyway. Yeah, so. that's true. <laughs> Now, you spoke a bit about how in, in your following book, there's going to be flashbacks, we're playing around with time, um, obviously the relations between Seren and, and Sam. Now, in in this novel, in The Shadows of Men, there's a great push and pull in the timelines between the characters as they oppose and collaborate between their chapters. Um, was the sliding time scale of their perspectives kind of a natural result of the writing, or did you lock everything in a place for that resounding catching of the gun at the end? Um no, I didn't. I didn't lock it in. It, it evolved. Um, having said that, I don't. I don't pants it. I do. I do plan. So I'll have a skeleton of what I think is going to happen. It'll be like a two-page you know, skeleton, and I'll flesh out the first third. And then when I've written the first third, I'll flesh out the next third, and then I'll write that. Um, having yeah. said that, very very often they go off piste. They'll do what they want. You know, Surin <laughs> ending up on a train and jumping off in the middle of nowhere was never planned. Um, him turning up, him putting on <laughs> Annie's dressing gown was never <laughs> planned. These are these are just the joys of writing, I think. Yeah. And you, you mm. wonder what the characters make of that. Having said that, I mean, the way I, I, I tend to write is there are natural rhythms to, to action. So I may write five or six chapters of Surin and then get to a point and I think, well, actually, now I should write, I should get Sam to the same point. And I'll write four or five chapters of Sam. The end result might be that we we put we we put chapters in between those, but I'll write let's call it a sub arc or or a or a flow of action from one character's point of view, and then do the flow of action from the others. Yeah. You know, naturally it just sort of feels right. You know, you know a point where you think, right, now I need to go back, or now I've had enough about talking about sort of 
I want to see what Sam's up to. So the writing doesn't happen in the way that the chapters are formed. It, it, it's much more sort of uh, iterative. It's much more organic um, rather than, I've written a chapter, Sam. I've got to write a chapter of Sorin to figure out where he is. You write the arc and then you, sh- it's like shuffling cards. You know, you, you put it together once you've done it. I think that's one of the really like interesting things about the structure of this book is that because you have the perspectives alternating in that way, it means that you as an author do have these like pieces that you can just put in different places. So when those timelines don't match up, it's more noticeable, it's less noticeable. And then that gun catch at the end where it suddenly clicks and it goes, Bang, that's the switch. It feels so good. You know what? And it's it's learning experience because the book I'm writing at the moment is the first time I've written something outside of the series. Uh, and it's set in, uh, well, it's set in the next two years and it's set in North America just before the next elections. And it's the first time I'm writing the third person and I have three different streams of action. And it's a similar thing. Uh, you've got this time slip as well. But I couldn't. I wouldn't be able to write this time slip if I hadn't written... Sam and Surin separately in the last book. You know, it's already, I should say I'm on the second draft of this book because the first draft was rubbish. I mean, as first drafts should be. <laughs> I think when you when you do a series, you sort of, you're lulled into the sense that you know what you're doing because you don't have to go back and do the basics because the basics have all been done. You think, yeah, I can do this. And then you write your first standalone, you realise you know nothing. Oh dear. Um, so yeah, so that's, but, but you pick up, going back to this point about learning as you go. I mean, everything that I've learned to date comes into this book and I've learned more but I, you know the, the 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 timing the timing that I'm doing now I couldn't have done if I hadn't done if I hadn't learnt with Sam and Surin in book five. One of the last things I wanted to touch on a beer was we discussed yeah, during water. our no, wait, first wait. let Ben get some water it's Australia. <laughs> we are talking about it. No it's fine no, I don't need water. We're you sure I've heard I've heard yeah. it's very hot. I've <laughs> read it dry. Okay. I know what it's like mate. Don't don't feel like you don't need to a beer I'm gonna let you know. Look, look at look at that the, poor boy sweating I'm with his fan at- off behind him. <laughs> it is pretty awful. I'm looking at the document we had to prepare for this. We have one we have one thing left in the notes, which means there's gonna be like ten more questions. But according to what we've got here, there's only one more. So I'm good. Don't even worry about me. One of the last things I wanted to touch on, we discussed during our first chat about the novel that Sam and Seren would absolutely be the type of friends to give you a dud grenade with the gunpowder still in it as an office Christmas gift. Uh, should Vasim Khan be concerned? <laughs> Vasim Khan should be concerned full stop, right? That's, That's a terrible. Point. Vasim Khan has a lot of concerns, right? It doesn't, it doesn't, it's water off a dust, but I keep telling him, I text him every day and tell him how, you know, how terrible he is, how, you know, in effect, no, he's very efficient. I just say, you know, as a writer, I tell him, you know, mate, you, know, you should take a break. This is a very salient point because, like, if Vasim Khan had given you the, the bomb, I would have said, well, it's obviously it's not going to go off because he's a murder mystery writer, but you're a thriller writer. What's the point of a bomb in a thriller if it doesn't go off? I don't know if I am a thriller writer. Most of my books are actually quite boring. <laughs> I would disagree, sir. I would disagree. Your your book was not boring. You had many bombs go off. I'm going to pick you up on this bomb because the two of you were poo-pooing the idea that ta- Taggart, poo-pooing the, the idea that Taggart would have a paperweight that was an unexploded bomb. The man actually did. So the, the chief commissioner of police in Calcutta was a man called Lord Taggart. See, I changed an E to an oh, A. Very clever. Clever. He's like a spy it's, master. It's just like, it's just like how uh, Prashant Mukherjee has absolutely no relation to yourself. Well, exactly. well that's not, I'll come on to that. But in terms of Taggart, Lord Taggart did have, did keep an unexploded bomb that was thrown at him 
um, as a paperweight in his office. So, so that is actual historical fact. There that you are. That is fantastic. Uh, I am so glad to be wrong. I should be clear. The reason I said that was more to throw herds off the trail of yeah, the, well, the questions oh, yeah, I was asking. Yeah, yeah, well, he just followed it. He followed it like a trail of breadcrumbs, didn't you, Herd? You, I, Absolutely. I can't help it. The man's... Complain about unexploded bombs. I have I to should com- be clear. I would I wouldn't have said it if the assumption hadn't come to my mind. So I'm not innocent here. You're right. He, no, he no, can take I, all the but I expected more of Ben. I really did. I mean, he's a romantic. You know I don't expect I ex- you to be led down the garden path by feeling. I mean, that's mate. How long have we known each other? And you, you just our whole of, lives. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've let you down a beer. <laughs> In terms of Prashant Mukherjee, now let me explain that. Please do. There's two stories here. Firstly, the Prashant Mukherjee one. So I've, I've got this habit of killing off my my real friends in books. Right, so every book... Oh, no, I'm I'm terrified for Orvis Kohler in the sequels. <laughs> so from book two onwards, I'm just... In the in the acknowledgements, I just apologise to people that I've killed, right? That's pretty good. And I thought, well, it's it's only fair that I do something with a Mukherjee. And, and so I make this the most pompous arrogant uh, character in the book, Mukherjee. And I, I say he's a prize ass, basically having a go at myself. Um, I also get, I got a complaint a wee while ago from a wee woman who said, you're really horrible to accountants. Why are you so nasty to accountants? My best friend is an accountant. You must have been terribly wronged by an accountant at some point in your life. Because in every book, you either kill accountants or you say horrible things about them. And I had to tell her that I am an accountant. <laughs> I spent 20 years of my life being one. And it's just sort of, it's really just humour either aimed at myself or at my friends who are accountants. So um, when she, she didn't think of that and she was, she was, she was, you know, very happy. She wrote I do to- want to say there are many crime writers, crime writers we love and respect who will always make their <laughs> own profession, who will always make them their profession, the hero of the story. Like you can go back through our catalog and just tick them off one after the other. I respect <laughs> oh, no. you've taken the opposite tact here. I really do. <laughs> it's got to be done. I mean, I, I, I spent 20 I was going to say happy. I think, yeah, happy years doing, you know, finance. Um, but, you know, there's it, a, a lot of fun to be had with accountants as well. So uh, you can get away with it. <laughs> I never thought I'd, I'd hear that phrase, but fair enough. Especially from you, uh, professed ben, hater. I'm writing a romantic one for you right Good. now. It's called Love Between the Spreadsheets. Oh, it's uh, beautiful. My romance and accounting. It'll be, be excellent. <laughs> I'll have to, I'll have to you, read you that one. You can cut that, that out if you want. No way. That oh, no, that's, that's going in the preview clip, I think. <laughs> All right. Anyway, Abia, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on Death of the Reader. I hope that we've made up for our sin of uh, having Vasim Khan on first. I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about it. You've, you've made right. amends. I, w- I won't put you on the spot with that one. I just wanted to plant hold, the seed in grudges. your head. I hold grudges. Listen, if I die in the next uh, Sam and Seren book, I will understand. Yes, Felix, Felix the eunuch yeah. will die. In the- <laughs> <laughs> Whenever the guy who finds his body and takes all his stuff... <laughs> Can I be that person? Of course. I was like, oh, that that other eunuch took the dead eunuch stuff. He must <laughs> the be the romantic killer, one. And that could be me. Yeah, the romantic eunuch. The sniping eunuch. We're not even going to get a name. We're going to be a body that they walk past. That's, <laughs> that's what I want. That's what we're going to get. <laughs> I'm a, a small, petty man. What can I say? <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> this is Death of I'm the joking, Reader. I'm joking, starring roles. Oh, I, I, I mean, I hope so, but I can't expect it. This is Death of the Reader. We are discussing Abir Mukherjee's The Shadows of Men. We'll be back with more of that in just a second. Thank you for joining us. Stick around. We've got five minutes that you can salvage from that. (laughs) 